Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. Today, we're happy to be shedding light on late stages of the industry, namely the growth stage with Cyrus Shea, managing partner at Briegel Milestone, a 500 million euro growth fund investing all across Europe. Cyrus and his team are of some of the best when it comes to using data to create a competitive advantage, and we'll be diving deep on this, as well as Briegel's value creation framework for founders. And don't forget, if you'd like to suggest any topics or guests for future episodes, please do reach out to David or Andreas through LinkedIn or at theeuropeanvc.com. And if you love our show, do make sure to subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you are about to raise an international round, do let us know, and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors in the European VC community. Hack and Hustle's launching the second cohort of their first fundraise accelerator program, tailor-made for European first-time founders about to raise their pre-seed or seed round. In 10 weeks, founders learn directly from European VC champions while they build and execute on a no BS fundraise prep that will secure them their next round of financing fast. It's up or out. If founders don't keep up the pace, they're kicked. So participation and progress is ensured for the most ambitious teams. Invite founders in your network to visit hackhustle.co and apply to get connected to the European VC. Before anything else, let's pass the mic over to Cyrus for him to highlight a couple of Briegel Milestone's greatest investments and provide a helicopter view of their fund. Great. Thank you. I want to thank you, Andres and David, for having me. I'm a big fan of you guys and your podcast. It's really, really fun and entertaining. Thanks, Cyrus. A little bit about us. So we're a technology-focused growth capital firm, and we invest in some of the most exciting and fast-growing scale-ups in Europe. And we help them scale not just with capital, but with concrete, strategic, and operational support. My two partners and I found a milestone because we experienced that the European market is structurally underserved once you pass the the series a b stage bc stage if you compare europe and the us european early or seed stage market is about the same size as the us market but by the time these companies get to growth stage they have to fight they have access to about one quarter of the capital that their us peers have access to so what we've done with Bergal milestone is we've created a european champion to back these companies and support them as a value-added partner. We've deployed about three quarters of our fund one of about 500 million euros. We've realized two exits. We've generated some great returns for our investors. We're in the top 5% globally for growth funds in terms of DPI distributions paid in capital. We've made nine investments and our platform investments, nine add-on investments as well. So 18 total deals in the last few years. I'll tell you about you asked about uh, one of the deals in our portfolio, so I'll, I'll touch on PAC. So PAC is a Spanish disruptor in the last mile delivery space, and they have an end-to-end software platform. It integrates with e-commerce retailers on the front end, and what it does is it manages the entire supply chain process from warehouse to routing to fleet management until the parcel is delivered to your home. And their software offers it a quality that the incumbents can't, ha- can't match. So if you as a customer or I want a one to two hour delivery slot for a package for a delivery, we get that with PAC. And they serve e-commerce giants like H&M, Zalando, Nike, Amazon, 
Apple with their technology. And we're really excited about this investment. They grew 250% in 2020. We're tracking around 70 million of annual revenues today. That's awesome, Cyrus. Thank you for joining us today. It's really a pleasure. I'm super happy. I have to uh, do a little side comment here and thank William McKillen for the introduction. William from Frontline Ventures. To our listeners, if you haven't listened to uh, our episodes with William, they're awesome, so check them out. Also, I want to shine light on something that I think deserves mention, which is what Cyrus and the team at Brigham Milestone did, which was to create a 3 million euro relief fund to support COVID-19 relief efforts. Thank you for that, Cyrus. I think it deserves a mention on this podcast. But back to today's episode. Cyrus, we always start on a personal note, so let's stick to that tradition. Can you share with us how you got into the wonderful world of VC, later stage, growth stage, and came to found Brigham Milestone? Yeah, with Pleasure, David. And before I answer that question, I do want to thank you for plugging the Brigal Helps 3 million euro COVID relief fund because it is important, as you say, and it was really kind of you to, to do that. ESG is something that's very important to us at Brigal. We're super, super passionate about it. In 2020, we mobilized a lot of money for some great causes. For example, we mobilized several hundred iPads to sick children in hospital who have cancer in the UK and Ireland. And this was much appreciated by the families because these kids in these hospitals, there were severe visitation restrictions and the children were all alone in the hospital. They couldn't see their friends. They could only see their family during restricted hours. And even, even my team produced homemade videos of us entertaining the children. We played the piano, we told jokes, that sort of thing to brighten up their, their days. Oh, that's cool. We also did a project last year for vulnerable families in Finland and Sweden who found themselves unemployed due, due to the pandemic. And we worked in partnership to get meals and to mobilize meals for these, these families, you know, with our portfolio company, Aposse. And that was a really valid cause. But coming back to your question, David, so why do we found Bergal Milestone? Well, Europe's tech companies are proliferating at that seed and Series A stage, but many of them are starved of funding when they reach growth stage. And without really good European sources of capital, many of these promising tech companies will struggle to raise the funds that they need to fuel you know, their success. And I think I saw a stat that one in eight European companies will reach scale uh, compared with one in four in the U.S. So we have to focus on helping Europe and helping the European technology scale-up scene. And so we built a founder-focused investment firm to address this need. But more importantly, we bring more than money. We bring strategic and operational value creation support through our own in-house team, which we call Milestone Performance Partners. And they work hand-in-hand -hand with our portfolio. Oh, that's super cool, Cyrus. I have a question that goes to your fundraising story because when you told it back then, I, I found it quite interesting and we have a lot of emerging managers on this podcast, of course. So I, I think it would be super cool for you to just expand a bit on how you approached it and your experiences there. Yeah, absolutely. So Andres, that's a, that's a great question. So with respect to fundraising, you know, it's we're, our cornerstone investor is a seventh generation European family, and we are structured like a fund. We have a standard GPLP relationship with this high net worth family, but we're part of a global platform called Brigal Investments. And that gives us a lot of stability, but also scalability as we look to raise additional funds. For us, it was really a good fit to join the Brigal family. Founders value our history, our heritage, our track record, our global network. And so in that sense, we have a different orientation than most funds. We recognize that many of the listeners to this podcast are maybe looking to raise a fund or have a fund or looking to grow their funds. And it's really hard work and, and hats off to everybody who puts in the blood, sweat and tears to raise funds. It's not easy. But look, from our side, we married 
what we saw as a big opportunity. And, and Bregal has a long and successful track record of building successful investing businesses such as ours across Europe and North America. We're really lucky to be part of it. Our sister strategies been really successful. And so we benefited from the halo of our sister strategies, but we've also built a very distinctive brand. We'll welcome third-party investors in due course in, uh, in future funds. Just for, because we also have LPs listening in and you just <laughs> described some pretty incredible stats. Future funds, what do you have on the roadmap there? Yes, thanks for asking. I have to be careful because of, <laughs> of course. regulatory and legal considerations. So we've not publicly announced the launch of our second fund. But what I can say is that we plan to grow significantly in 2021. Mm -hmm. We hope to be the largest European-focused late-stage technology investors of 2021, and our investors are extremely supportive and enthusiastic. Ah, that's super cool, Cyrus. Let's shift the focus now. Let's focus on deal flow, and it's a different beast to be. Uh, normally, we're talking to the very early stage, so the seed investors, and it's a completely different beast when you're, of course, sourcing deals at the growth stage. So I'd love for us to deep dive on that and maybe especially focus on how you drive deal flow and how you look at it through a data lens. Would you maybe expound on that? Sourcing is our secret sauce at Bergal Milestone. We've spoken to about 7,000 companies over the past several years. We believe that to do our job well and to generate great returns, we have to be good at sourcing. And how are you good at sourcing? Well, sourcing for us is about three things. It's about people, process, and technology. So on the people front, we are incredibly diverse. We have 12 nationalities on our team. We speak 11 languages and we pride ourselves on our diversity. It's, it's something that we're very focused on. We also, on the people front, we try to embed an entrepreneurial spirit in every single one of our people. And we look for people who are inherently entrepreneurial and intellectually curious. Those people really value the VC ecosystem. I know there are a lot of VC listeners on this. We try to build deep long-term relationships with the whole European VC community, as well as the business angel community for that matter. So any VCs who are out there or business angels, you know, please reach out to us. Let's work together. We want to help you. When your portfolio company is starting to track close to 10 million of annual recurring revenues, we want to hear from you. We want to, we're delighted to get to know people. We're in the people business. It's really important that we can build mutual trust and help you uh, scale your portfolio. On the process front, we have a thematic sector and geographic driven approach. As you heard me say, we have 12 nationalities, we speak 11 languages, so we can conquer all of Europe with this diverse team. And we proactively do this high volume outbounds to build relationships. We speak to almost 100 new companies per week. Often, many of the investments that we make take 18 to 24 months of relationship building before either side is ready for a transaction. But that's okay for us. We take a long-term view and we value that long-term relationship. On the technology front, we built our own proprietary software. We call it the Beehive. And the Beehive is our own software that leverages over a million data points and lead signals to find new companies each and every day for the investment team. So what do I mean by lead signals? They could be product releases, management changes, job openings, any sort of lead trigger that will set off a light bulb and say, you should be, we should be talking to this company. And we apply machine learning. We have our own proprietary scoring algorithm in the Beehive. We use all of this to surface new investment opportunities. And, and what we like to say to investors is that the Beehive gives us an unfair advantage over our competition in terms of deal sourcing. But of course, that and that alone 
is coupled with our process and our people to lead to the results that we've had. And over 100% of our deals have been sourced bilaterally without a competitive process. And these are larger businesses. They're scale-ups. I was thinking back to when you told me the case of M-Files, and I'd like for you to dive deep on that and maybe share with us how M-Files connects to a broken Tesla in the Finnish Outback. Yeah, that's a great story. So in, in 2018, my partner and I were traveling to Tampere, Finland. I don't know if you've ever heard of Tampere. It's a several hours. I've actually, I've actually been there once. Uh, it's one of the very weird places I've been. <laughs> Yeah, there's some great people in Tempera, and it's a real uh, hotbed of innovation. It's several hours north of Helsinki. We took a Tesla. At the time, it was one of the first Teslas in Finland. In fact, I think it may have been the first rolling off the production line. And we were looking at our at our GPS, and it tells you where the nearest power charging station is. And there was a glitch in the operating system. And long story short. We found ourselves on the side of the highway. The battery ran out. We had to take a train. And we were visiting the founder of M-Files. We managed to get there by train. So by hook or by crook. And the Tesla, we had to hire a, we had to have the Tesla get towed away uh, by a nearby garage. But in the end, we got there. And we started to build a relationship with the founder of M-Files. And let me tell you about M-Files. So it's a really super enterprise software business. And the founder set it up in 2005. It was founded on the belief that data is siloed inside of businesses. So he wanted to create a repository neutral AI powered software to help companies find and share and secure documents in the cloud. He did this and built it from scratch to since 2005. Here we are 16 years later, Antti Nivala, very strong, ambitious CEO founder and his team have built a business that has over 70 million of revenues, amazing stats, 80% gross margins, 40% annual re recurring revenue growth, 115% net retention, a global footprint, large and growing enterprise client base, and Gartner consistently rates and files as a visionary for content services. So it's a really beautiful story in terms of what Antti has built. And we're, ever since we, our Tesla ran out of power on the side of the highway, It took us several years of relationship building, but it's a great story about how we built that trust up with Antti and he welcomed us in as an investor in 2020. Cyrus, coming back to your previous topic about the three kind of different aspects within Brigham Milestone, people, process, technology, you shared something with us that I would love for you to expand on here for our listeners, which is your strategy of partnering with acting executives at some pretty awesome companies. Can you share that with our listeners? Absolutely. So... In addition to the Milestone Performance Partners Value Creation Team, our portfolio companies derive a lot of value from our senior advisor network. So when we built our business, we realized that we needed to bring access and we needed to bring network. And so we have more than 200 industry experts. And what really sets us apart is a group of about a dozen senior advisors from industry, from the world's best technology companies who work very, very closely with our portfolio. So what sets them apart is, number one, they work at firms like Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and Amazon, and they're acting senior management in these companies. Two, they're on contract with us, and they work exclusively with us. And three, they're personally invested in our funds. So they work hand-in-hand -hand on boards, outside of boardrooms, with our management teams, and they have full alignment with the success of our fund and our portfolio because they're co-investors alongside of us. Cyrus, I'd like to hear from you as a growth stage investor. What do you see is the best thing that early stage investors 
can do for their portfolio companies in getting ready for the growth stage. And I'm also curious, what do you see VCs doing wrong from your perspective? Yeah, so the best early stage investors that we have worked with are really good at spotting trends. They have very high EQ, they have very high pattern recognition, and they're very good judges of people because a lot of the time when you're at a seed or series A, it's the judgment is as much about the people as it is about the future business proposition. Great people can achieve great things and can pivot and evolve and are dynamic. The mistakes I've seen from earlier stage investors is just unrealistic value expectations, raising too much too fast. Maybe a, a fundamentally sound business is taking on a lot of risk by getting too expensive too early. A business is going to be valued on its fundamentals, whether it's growth, revenue, recurrence, and eventually it's path to prop generating profit. The biggest mistake you can make is to go too big too fast. I say this from the perspective that great companies should not go off the rails too early. Everyone can read about Spotify and Uber and Facebook, but in order to succeed, you know, you don't need to be Spotify, Uber, and Facebook. We all want to have huge ambitions and huge success. As long as the VC community can take a measured approach and get consistent results, they'll have great returns for their investors. Cyrus, let, let me go off script here. I'm sorry, but uh, sure. I'm really curious to have your take on this because there are, I don't know how many unicorns out there. The way I like to put it is like, name five or name three, and even well-versed people in venture sometimes have a hard time. <laughs> so do, do you have any any thoughts around that about the unicorn, let's call it phenomenon and what it means for the industry as a whole? Yeah, I mean, the unicorn phenomenon, we've seen a real dislocation between the public market valuations where we're seeing a lot of unicorns come to the IPO markets and private market valuations. And what really has fueled that is the $140 billion of SPAC dry powder being raised public market sentiment. I think yeah. for the past 12 months, the IPO markets have significantly improved. And we've really seen during 2020 and during COVID 10 year trends in tech adoption and trends compressed into one year. Yeah. And from our side, that's really great. We believe a lot of these trends are sustainable. We believe that a business that can generate consistent growth, meaningful revenue recurrence, has diversified and loyal customers, has a differentiated value prop, they're always going to be valued at a premium. And now more than ever, we're seeing that unicorn phenomenon accelerate. And that's something that gives people, VCs and management teams and people like us, a lot of hope. And we're very bullish about the future. Uh, but at the same time, Cyrus, I'm also guessing when you're saying what you just did a bit earlier with with VCs and founders not letting their thoughts about possible future valuations get the better of them. I'm guessing that you are also seeing at your stage that we have an issue with valuations getting ahead of the fundamentals of the businesses. And that is keeping someone like you who are looking at the fundamentals saying, nah, at this price, this deal isn't for me. Yes, exactly. Our goal is to generate at least three times money multiples, and we need to deliver consistent results for our investors. And so in order to deliver consistent results, we need to be sensitive to valuations. And if you look over a cycle, valuations peak and trough, and they operate within a band. If we're operating at a peak today, the way that we're going to run our underwriting case in the investment committee discussion we're going to have is that at exit, the valuation multiples are not going to be as high as they are today. And so... The only way we can generate the returns that we seek 
is if the business has really best-in-class growth and a clear path to profitability. If it has those two things and has a fundamentally sound business, we're happy to pay a premium, but always within reason. And I think all businesses can't be valued at a premium. And I think getting to size and scale and premium valuations is achievable if the VC community can operate within a band of reason. <laughs> Everyone wants success and all of us want the same thing. But, you know, making a great return doesn't always have to mean that you make 100 times your money if you're a VC. Yeah, absolutely. Coming back to Andrea's kind of original question about, you know, best practices, what, what you've seen uh, earlier stage investors doing well. We're seeing kind of a, a micro VC or a smaller uh, sized VC kind of trend in the early stages. And these guys, you know, smaller structures, smaller management fees, so that there's fewer operational capacity. Based on what you've seen so far in your experience further down the investment process for a company, you know, these guys have to make hard decisions of where to put their focus. What would be your tips there for these earlier stage, super small sized funds in some cases of where to focus. If you're a smaller size fund, there's a fundamental opportunity and challenge. The opportunity is that you want to source really great investments that generate amazing returns if you're a micro VC. But the challenge is how do you build a scalable model, you know, and how can you do this in a repeatable way with the constraints that you have in terms of fees and people? One way that you can do this is by building yourself into the ecosystem of later stage investors. So if you're a seed investor or a series A investor, you talked about William Quinlan, and I think he's a great example of that. William was very enthusiastic about talking to us and he wanted to make introductions left and right to companies in his portfolio. He saw the value of having somebody like us come in later and the scale and operating leverage that it gives William. We speak to, I'll give a shout out to someone else. There's a friend at InVenture who reached out to me a week ago and he said, look, I'd love to give you a, are you free to chat next week? And I couldn't tell you how much I appreciated that call and how pleased I was that he reached out to me because he wanted to update me on five deals in his portfolio. It was a great way for us to build a longer term relationship. He maintains periodic contact, but more importantly, He's constantly putting opportunities on our radar screen, and it's never too early to be speaking to us. As I said before, we want to build relationships. We want to get to know companies early, and we start to get interested once the business is at 10 million annual recurring revenues, but we already start building relationships with businesses that have only a few million of annual recurring revenues. And that's exciting for us because in a year or 18 months, these will become investable and they'll appreciate knowing us and we'll appreciate knowing that. Cyrus, we're seeing more and more growth stage investors going down market and actually acting in the Series A stage, sometimes even leading the rounds. What are your views on that and what is your strategy there? Are you dipping your toaster and putting in a couple of, <laughs> of millions in that kind of deals? Or do you stick to the growth stage and say, nah, we partner at the early stage and we'll look at the deals and create some value there, but we won't be investing in that stage? It's a great question. We are dipping our toes. But we have to be very selective. Our stance is we want to do investments as low as 20 million euros. In order for us to invest 20 million euros and to devote the time and energy and resource, whether it's through our senior advisor network or a milestone performance partners value creation team, we have to invest a lot into the success of these companies. We don't take a spray and pray approach. We like to run a very concentrated portfolio and ensure the success of every single one of our companies. So in order to do that well, if we're going to dip our toes in the Series A space, we need to be able to see huge scale factor and significant growth. And we have seen a lot of great companies in that space, and we are 
actively exploring those situations. But what we don't want to do is to invest in a Series A and have them chug along for several years. So we have to be very selective. Otherwise, we won't be able to scale our business and we won't be able to give all the support that these companies deserve. Thomas, I'm going to once again come back to something you said, <laughs> which was you were talking about the diversity of your team, both mainly in terms of, you know, you talked about the fact that you speak so many languages. So that allows you to have European coverage, but also diversity in, in a more kind of non-specific way of different backgrounds and, and ways of thinking. And I wanted to connect that to an interesting challenge for European startups. And I'm going on a limb here, but I guess scale-ups as well, which is going cross-border because Europe, you know, it's more complex than the States. <laughs> we're, we're doing our best to simplify it, but it's still more complex than the States. And I'd love you to give you the time to shine light on that match between so the diversity of your team at Brigham Milestone and the ability to have that geographic coverage and how you help scale-ups doing exactly that, getting that, increasing their own right geographic coverage. Yeah, sure. So we develop very local knowledge and relationships. We focus on six focused regions, UK, Ireland, France, Iberia, Nordics, Benelux and Dach and Italy. And so we set up our business with 11 nationalities and the many languages that we speak across these different geographic regions. Mm -hmm. And that really gives us an edge, not only for new platform investments, but also for add-ons. So if a Nordic company is looking to go into Germany or a Spanish company is looking to go into France, they can benefit from the fact that we know people in these markets, that we have access to and track record in these markets that we have active relationships and we speak the local lingo and we can connect them to the right people. That pan-European orientation that we have is hugely valuable. But I'd say a lot of the companies that we work with have huge ambitions to go to the U.S. as well. And that's the prize. And so what we really specialize in is not only reinforcing a leading market, European leading market position and helping them grow in Europe, but also heading over to the other side of the pond. And being Brugal, being a global investment platform, having invested about $20 billion over the last 15 years, we have the track record and the experience of taking European companies. And once they've achieved size, scale, and success in Europe, then going over to the U.S. Before diving into how we get to the U.S., a lot of the VCs we're talking to here are earlier stage, and that means that many of them are also working in the space of getting their investments to scale across Europe. And here I think that you have an interesting strategy that is very M&A based. So maybe you could expound on that. With pleasure. So, you know, companies can grow organically or they can grow inorganically. And what we are is essentially an outsourced corporate development team for a European scale-up. Many of these companies realize that going greenfield into the U.S. or into a new European market presents challenges. Unless the business has an established customer footprint or a local market presence, then you're hanging a sign on the door and you're trying to build that local credibility. Oftentimes, it helps be able to expand into a new market through acquisition. And so we've completed nine add-on acquisitions for our portfolio. I'll give you an example. We've invested in a business called Epossi, which is a payments platform business. And it's based in Helsinki, Finland. We made three add-on acquisitions across the Nordics over the past 18 months to help Epossi expand. We've tripled the revenues We now have one and a half million users. So almost one out of 10 people in the Nordics uses Epossi on a regular basis. We have 10,000 B2B customers and we have over 35,000 merchants. And all of that couldn't have been achieved unless we had made these acquisitions. So we're really proud of our track record. And I think for a lot of European scale-ups, they can derive enormous value by bringing on board an investor like us 
who has the pattern recognition, who has the network, who is constantly in the market in all these different European markets to source and identify and underwrite and diligence the creative and acquisitions, bolt on acquisitions for their companies that will expand their customer geographic footprint. I'm sure that when you do that many acquisitions, you also run into the typical psychological issues of mergers and acquisitions. What do you do with the existing leadership or the existing founders? Because oftentimes it's startups being acquired when it's on the technological front, like many of your investments are. So Cyrus, how do you work around that? Because I imagine it could very quickly become a founder nightmare. <laughs> Less than you would think. Uh, everyone wants to get on board a rocket ship. And if you come to a smaller business and you're a larger business and you say, look, we're, we're much closer than you are to the big exit. We're scaling very efficiently. We have a global customer footprint. Let me articulate to you what the synergies are if you were to join our platform. Most people will take that meeting. Most people will take that call and putting egos aside, we would give people the opportunity to be co-investors. We're not precious about the cash stock split. Many entrepreneurs of a smaller business who would be acquired want to be reinvest most of their stake. In fact, we're about to close an investment in a software business that has 38 million of annual recurring revenue. In connection with our investment, they're buying a 15 million annual recurring revenue business in the US. The consideration for this deal is 80% stock and 20% cash. Yeah. So it shows you that the target said, look, I want to be part of this. I don't need the cash. I don't want the cash. I want to be part of this bigger story. Cyrus, we are running out of time. So we're going to go into the last part of this episode, which is a quick fire round, quick fire round. Yes. We ask quick answer questions. Um, okay. 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Yes. Awesome. I'll have to go a bit off script because we ended up diving into some of them. So I'll change it up a bit. I hope you don't mind. So first question, what would you personally like to change about venture in Europe? We'd like to see the VC community catch up to the US. We'd like to see VCs build bridges to the late stage growth funds like us. We want to help the VC community build, you know, accelerate towards the big exit. We want to help them free up their capacity. I think what we want to see change is better connectivity. And that's why I'm so excited to be on this podcast because we want to hear from more VCs. And we're very grateful to the VC community for all the hard work that they put in to get these businesses to where they are. Hopefully we are up to the expectation. <laughs> Thank you again for joining us. The second question, something that's completely new to me, but in some regions, apart from where I'm from, Portugal, are talking about super small IPOs for founders to get that investment round, so to speak. And founders talking about these small IPOs, so national or regional IPOs, so to speak, talking about it not as an exit, but just as an investment round. What are your thoughts on this? And I don't know if you have any advice or comments for founders specifically. So I believe that these super small IPOs are very harmful to the long-term viability and sustainability of the companies. If a company goes public when it's too small, it doesn't create a meaningful liquidity event for the investors. It doesn't allow the company to innovate to the right size and scale because companies end up becoming zombies on small exchanges Nobody follows them. Nobody invests in them. They become stuck. The stock becomes a liquid. And in Europe, the right time to go public is when the stock can be sufficiently liquid. So the investors and the management team can benefit from using that stock as a currency and personally and financially benefit in terms of their sweat equity or their ESOPs or their initial Series A, Series B investments. We believe the right time to go public in Europe is when the business path 
50 or 75 million euros of recurring revenues. In the US, it's definitely closer to 100 million of your recurring revenues. And we believe that investors and founders in Europe, they're much better served staying private longer because they'll have a much better IPO. They can continue to achieve liquidity along the way, but not get stuck. If you have size and scale before you go public, you'll have a much better IPO. And guess what? When you have a great IPO, everyone benefits from that. And if you go public too soon, you're going to suffer for a very long time. Do you have, uh, sorry, I have to ask because this is a phenomenon occurring very much in uh, in the Nordics right now. Yeah. Do you have any explanation as to why it is gaining traction? Sadly, I think it's because less sophisticated institutional investors who buy these small IPOs are misjudging risk and return. Maybe they have a different cost of capital. So if a 3 million revenue company in Denmark goes public for a 20 million market cap, they're going to go into zombie land for a very long time. <laughs> and somebody is buying that with someone's pension money or insurer or whatnot. And sadly, that's not good for the end investor. It's not good for anyone. We don't recommend anyone pursues it because it's all about creating liquidity and that doesn't create liquidity for anyone. Yeah, uh, sorry, back to the quick fire round. Final question, what's next for Brugal Milestone and for you, for Sarah Shea? Yeah, thanks for asking. So we'll keep executing on this people, process and technology sourcing strategy. On the deal front, our pipeline is as deep as it's ever been. We expect to invest between 250 and 300 million euros this year across four to six investments. We've got the track record, we've got the team, we've got the strategy. We want to help Europe's most promising tech companies become champions. Really appreciate the opportunity to be on this podcast and really hopeful that people will reach out to me. My, my email is cyrus.jay at brigalmilestone.com. If anyone wants to get in touch, please don't hesitate. I'd love to hear from people. Awesome. Thank you, Cyrus. It was a huge pleasure. I learned a bunch. <laughs> so that's that's cool. We'll do our best to disseminate this throughout our network and, and make sure that we play a small part in, uh, in VCs reaching out to you and build that relationship. Thank you so much. Andres and David, thank you. You guys are great. Appreciate it. This was our interview with Cyrus Shea, managing partner for Gal Milestone. If you would like to see more from Cyrus, follow him on LinkedIn or hit him up on the email he just gave you. We thank you for listening to the European VC, your go-to place for insights into European VC. Visit theeuropeanvc.com to hear more from us. If you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, please reach out to us. We're always there for you.